You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hey, good morning, River. It's great to see you guys today. I hope you and trust that you are doing well, and I'm excited about our meeting later this afternoon. Just so awesome to be able to think about, even just think about being able to help another church uh, and uh, to help um, restoration. So before that, I want to talk to you this morning, and before we participate together in the Lord's Supper and remembering of our Lord's death for us, uh, I want to talk to you about spiritual adultery. You know, Infidelity in marriage is probably the biggest thing that can destroy a marriage quickly. Nothing that I'm aware of can destroy trust and years of relationship just so quickly and just invite such pain and destruction into a relationship. It's recovering from it is not impossible. In fact, through Christ, two people who've, who've walked that journey together can absolutely come out on the other side and love one another and, and re, uh, reunite and, and recover from that. Although I will say it's the memory and the reality is there and those things are those one of those things that you get through you don't quite fully get over but this morning Paul is going to talk to us about another side of adultery uh, if you will a spiritual adultery and he's challenging us this morning to make sure that we're not pursuing another gospel or another Jesus so before we participate in the Lord's Supper I thought this is just so fitting of a passage just for us to think about to examine our hearts You know, where are we with the one true gospel, the fact that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day and that he and he alone delivers us from sin. So this morning, I want to to each and one of our hearts to just be challenged as to where is our heart when it comes to the gospel? Are we focused there or is our focus elsewhere? So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And read, uh, we're going to read the first, I don't know, five verses or so, and then the last three or two or three, four verses at the chapter. So first, second Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 11, start with me in verse one. The Bible says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. That's Paul's way of saying, hey, just hang with me. Don't check out on me yet. Just stay with me. I got some important things to share with you. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband, I I married you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that crafty, manipulative lie, your thoughts, I'm concerned, I'm afraid that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what we're being challenged with this morning is our our hearts and our minds and our thoughts a pure devotion to Jesus or do we have wandering eyes in our relationship to Jesus? Are we beginning to look elsewhere for love and for fulfillment and for security. Go on in verse 4. The Bible says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You're entertaining this, and you're allowing this in your midst And you're becoming spiritually 
unfaithful. Paul goes on, and he talks a little bit more about the individuals and kind of the relationship and the accusations with him in the chapter, but I'm going to jump to kind of the bottom line in. Paul says about these individuals who were luring them away to another Jesus and another gospel. In verse 13, he says this. He says, For such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan never comes to us declaring his true colors. Would you accept something that you know is evil or harmful or destructive? Of course not. You'd run away from it. But he always comes, oh, look, this is good, tricking and deceiving us. And Paul says we shouldn't be surprised that there are imposters out there uh, sharing, peddling a false gospel. He goes on, he says, so it's no surprise, in verse 15, if his servants, his earthly minions, if you will, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They act like they speak righteousness and they're doing good things, but they're not. He goes on, he says, their end will correspond to their deeds. The lure of spiritual adultery is very real. Just as any married couple, if they're being honest with themselves, knows that, that, that we've, we have temptations in this life. It's who we are as sinful individuals. And we in our hearts make sure that we, you know, our, our job is to make sure that our hearts and minds and our bodies stays pure to the, the one to whom that we are married. And Paul is, is challenging us. He's saying, guys, examine your heart. Examine what's going on in your mind. Examine your actions. Examine your beliefs. Because you're being lured away by, a, by an alluring, by a, some these, this, these individuals and these things that they're teaching are really not the truth of God's Word. They're really not founded in the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And they are subtly subverting and pulling you away from, from Jesus. So what is spiritual adultery? Paul says, I, I married you. You are a pure virgin. I married you to, to Christ. We know that we are the... When the Bible describes what the church is, we know it's a body. We're the body of Christ. It describes us, honestly, as a building. That together we're the temple, you know, that Christ inhabits. But another picture that the Bible uses is that we are the bride of Christ, that we have been married to Him. I think for men, I think for those of us, it's hard for us to think ourselves as a bride. Ladies, it's probably a little bit easier for you to do the mental gymnastics. Um, I could be wrong. I know that's not politically correct in the world around us, but I think that's reality, and I think you understand what I'm trying to tell you. But nonetheless, God puts us individually in our heart together with Christ and just like in the, the, the realm of, of marriage in this world, that we can get pulled away and begin to commit spiritual adultery when we begin to put our focus elsewhere, when we begin to be allured away and not have our heart and our mind set specifically upon Jesus, when we begin to, to have a wanderlust, when our, our loyalties begin to not lie first and foremost to Christ and they get pulled aside. 
When what we rely on in our life and our hope and our future and our security, our identity, is not so much that God loved us and Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again. That is the gospel that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. That's, that's the good news that Jesus died for us, that we can't save ourselves. And so he died in our place so that he could rescue us. And by faith and faith alone, we receive him as Lord of our life. And when we begin to drift away from that, when that begins to take second place in our life, when we begin to accept other things that change that somewhat, and we'll see in a minute that these other false gospels aren't so much a rejection of that as they are a subverting and adding to and changing that truth and that reality in our life. And Paul says... Be careful. So this morning as we approach the Lord's table, this is your time to think through, to examine your heart. In fact, in just a few minutes, I'm going to share with you five different false gospels that are profoundly and powerfully at work in the world around us. And every one of us in this room are vulnerable to at least one of these, if not more. We're vulnerable to, to the teachings and being allured and subverted with those kinds of things. And so how, how do we fall? How... You know, think about the, the dangers of it. When spiritually, physically, in the married sense, when, we, when someone f falls and has an affair, whether it's in body or whether it's in heart, some affairs are just a, a connection, an identity with another individual that's beginning to go that physical way. Either way, whether it's an affair of, of heart or whether an affair in the body, both are egregious before our, our spouse and how damaging and destructive that is. And just as much how offensive it is to our God in heaven who sees all and knows our heart and watches that unfold, sees the, 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 lack, the lack of loyalty and the, the lack of looking for, for answers and hope and putting our enjoyment somewhere else. It's so destructive. How does it begin to happen? Well, it begins really when you and I are not satisfied with what God offers how does a real affair begin to happen in a marriage? It begins to happen when somebody stops feeling like they are satisfied with their spouse. It begins when that dissatisfaction begins to grow. And as that dissatisfaction begins to grow, there begins to be a rift. A heart begins to turn cold. A heart may not be yet turned towards someone else, but it is beginning to turn off toward the spouse. And so as we are no longer fully satisfied and engaging in, 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 in love and in commitment to one individual, and we begin to turn aside from that, then we begin to be open to other potential suitors. We begin to become available in our mind, and others begin to perceive that and begin to go down that road. And truth be known, we actually, as we're beginning that, that direction, we begin just really, rather than serving and, and doing what we should be doing toward our spouse, we become more focused on ourselves. As I've shared so many times, all of us, when we got married, if we're really honest with ourselves, we weren't sitting here saying, this is great, I get to serve this other person the rest of my life. No, we got married because we're like, great, look what I get, you know. that's We're all thinking of ourselves no matter how, oh, wait a minute, Sean, you know, we love Jesus. We'll, I get it. Okay, I get it. But let's be real. Let's keep it honest. 
But when we, if we somehow in the middle early on in that marriage relationship don't flip the switch to really become committed in our heart and our mind and our body to our spouse, and we begin just wanting to fulfill our needs, our hearts begin to turn. Because there's nobody on this planet good enough to match our self-centeredness. Nobody could live up to that. No one in this world could manage to be perfect in, in our minds and our life. And so what happens with us spiritually is that you and I, when we begin to subtly, yes, we know Jesus and we're saved, but we be, when we begin to somehow put that on the back burner, somehow we begin to kind of just coast in our love relationship with Christ, somehow our commitments begin to falter, we begin to find our identity and our security and other things, then we become vulnerable to other gospels and to those who are peddling them around us. And Paul is trying to sober us up. He's trying to wise us up because the offensiveness is so deadly. It's just so, so, so deadly in our life. You see, these come about, the enemy's job. He comes as, a, as an angel of light, the Bible says, not in darkness. He doesn't come to us with something gross that looks awful or not helpful that we would never want. He comes at us with something we do want. And when Jesus is not enough for us, and we begin looking for other things, and even just subtly, not necessarily actively, that's how even our, our, our relational uh, affairs begin to happen. It's not an active search. You don't wake up one day and like, oh, I think I'm going to have an affair. Instead, it becomes just this slowly turning of heart, one little step at a time. I mean, how do you ever get lost if you've ever gone off the trail or, you know, been hiking or wandering around the woods? You don't just, you know, say, well, I think I'm going to get lost. You know, you just, you take one step and another little step and another step. And, you know, before long, you're just like, I have no idea where I am. I don't even know how to get back. That's how we all need to be careful. None of us in the spiritual world as well as the physical world are above uh, adultery. And so we have to watch those steps in our heart carefully that we don't start taking those things. The enemy comes as an angel of light. And his goal isn't to just somehow just totally, you know, cut us off from the gospel as much as he just wants to subvert it. In fact, he just adds a little bit to it. He wants to kind of distract us. You know, I, I think there's probably a, a real term, the educator or the teachers and the kids experts in the room could tell me this later, but, you know, there's a strategy out there that every parent's known for hundreds and I'm sure thousands of years that when your kid is cranky or bothered with whatever, just find something else and kind of distract them. Like, oh, look, you know, look at that, you know, and, and you just kind of, you get them off of that. That's what, that's what the enemy does with us. When we're not satisfied and we're getting a little spiritually irritable and we blame that either on God, God's not meeting our expectations the way we think he should, and the problem is our heart, not God, when we begin just getting cranky and not focused on him, we're, the fact this is so funny, the less we focus on God, the more irritable and cranky and unfulfilled we're going to get, and it only feeds the monster. When that begins happening, the enemy just kind of slips in and says, oh, look over here. Look, this is something you're interested in. He just diverts our attention 
subtly in our life. Make no mistake, there are a lot of false gospels in the world around us. We should not be surprised at this. You see, we're all, the whole world, whether a person is a person of faith or not, whether they're a follower of Jesus or not, we're all looking at the same train wreck accident in this world and trying to make sense of it. We're trying to fix this world. We see the, the ills and the, just the challenges and the wrongs and all of that. And what, what we know as followers of Jesus, that only Jesus is the one that's able to bring that rightness into our heart and into our life to set things straight. And then out of the overflow of that, it begins to create that, that rightness and that light that begins to spread out into the, to the community and around us. We shouldn't be surprised that there are other false gospels, false narratives, false things floating around of how to help and fix situations and people and society and all of that. And if we're not careful, we begin to get allured and pulled into those things, things that are not built on the truth of God's Word, but actually are built on lies that pull us away from God's Word. So let me, there's five of these I want to get. There's more than five, but there's five really deadly, very just popular false gospels in our world around us. And I'm going to go through them quickly because we don't have time to go at length at these. But the first one is, uh, is, is what I call the faith plus gospel. It's when a person has faith in Jesus, or at least so they think, but their faith is also on other things. Other things that they do, maybe being a religious person, maybe being a good person, maybe a specific religious act, whether it's participating in the, the Lord's table and communion or whether it's baptism or, or good, good things. When, if, if we're not careful, we begin to say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I really am a good person. I should go to heaven because I'm good. Well, I believe in Jesus, but... Baptism really washes away my sins. Well, I believe in Jesus, and it adds, fill in the blank, you know, the little, the go back to math class, you know, faith, put the little plus sign, plus fill in the blank, whatever that variable is, equals, and that's not the gospel. That is a false gospel. The real gospel is explained to us by repenting from our sins, trusting in Jesus as Lord of our life, God saves us, and then we live differently. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, what did Paul tell the Philippian jailer who came in and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul, without blinking, without thinking, he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you, you will be saved. When Paul went back and he was explaining the Ephesian church, he's like, what's the sum total of everything I talked to you about? He said, I taught you, and this is quoting, I, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ said everything's in those two things. Well, Sean, I thought you just said it's faith and nothing else. What is, what's this repentance and faith thing? Repentance precedes faith. You see, repentance is when you and I turn away from the things that we do wrong. And it, when it comes to these things, that's what turns us, what causes us to say, I need Jesus. This isn't working. This is a mess. I've destroyed my life. I've sinned against the holy God. I have offended a God in heaven. I turn away from that. And I put my faith in Jesus. You see, you can repent from stuff without putting your faith in Jesus. Oh, I don't ever want to do that again. Oh, I'm going to stop and do that. Just because you turn away doesn't mean you put your faith in Jesus. But if you genuinely put your faith in Jesus, I promise you somewhere before that, you turn from your sins. 
The faith plus gospel is when you and I turn toward faith, but then faith is not enough. Jesus is not enough. What's wrong with the faith plus gospel is, is it means you and I are trying to become our own Savior because we're trying to put our faith in Jesus for Jesus to save us, but then we're also putting our faith in stuff that we do. And that's offensive to God. Jesus, you're not powerful enough. You're just not strong enough. I got to help you out a little bit. I don't need all of your saving. I got, I got some of this covered on my own. That's the faith plus gospel. It's common. It's with very religious people who are trusting their religion, their tradition, their religious spiritual traditions. They're being a good person. It's a false gospel. The true gospel is only Jesus can save us from our sin. The second, the second one is not just the faith plus. The first one is faith plus gospel. The second one is a second grace experience gospel. It's a gospel where Jesus is not quite enough. That yes, you're truly saved, but we need more. There's a whole second stage, almost like a rocket booster going into space. The first stage is you trust Jesus. He saves you from your sin, but you need the second stage boost in your life. And you need to seek God to have this second, almost a second conversion experience that you get baptized in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and you speak in tongues and all of that. It takes one or two instances in the Bible and makes it that happened in, in, in history originally when the Holy Spirit first came, and it makes it normative to every person's life. You see, this, this second experience gospel, when, when individuals are stepping on this slippery slope, they begin to pursue these experiences almost as a validation of God's love. And what's happening slowly is, is it's not... The cross of Jesus is not enough. The fact that Jesus saves us from our sin is not enough. There's always a pursuing bigger and better and, and showier and more, almost like we got I gotta God's gotta do something in my life for me to feel it and for it to be real. And folks, the truth is is that God wants us to experience his grace and love. But Jesus is enough. We trust him by faith, and we live that out. Those who are pursuing the second grace gospel, they step on a slope and they, it opens a whole doorway where they pursue all kinds of stuff that's not in the Bible and these experiences. And, and there's a, an emphasis in the Holy Spirit beyond what God told us. Jesus said, look, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to help you. But the way he's going to help you is he's going to tell you about all the stuff. He's going to remind you all the stuff that I told you about. He points back to me. You see, at the end... The second grace experience gospel, Jesus is insufficient for our today. He's insufficient to give us what we want, and it puts such a focus on the touchy-feely experience, again, on ourselves, that we begin to ignore and neglect Jesus over here. The third one, the third one is the prosperity gospel. You've probably run into this before, heard it. This is the get-rich-quick scheme gospel. This is, hey, what God really wants for you is to be wealthy. And if you have enough faith, you can not only be wealthy, but you can be healthy. If you've got problems going on in your life, it's because you don't have enough faith, and you really just need to trust God. And it, and it, and it marries 
the gospel of Jesus who's to save us from our sins and get a relationship with God, and it marries that with our health and wealth and our prosperity. And it's increasingly getting common. It's, so, it's popular today in, in the world around us, kind of like be the best version of you, right? The best you that you can be. And there's, this is the way these false gospels work. There's always a kernel of truth and light in these things. Should we strive to maximize what God has given us in life? Absolutely. But we should do it as a reflection of our love for God Rather than a self-centered focus, woohoo, look at me, I've got the best life that I can live in front of everything that's going around me. You'll hear, I almost never do this, but because these gospels are so rampant, I'm going to mention a couple of names to you that are in this. Joel Osteen's one, a proponent of this, and a, a second one is Joyce Meyer. Be careful. There is, am I saying that everything those individuals say is bad or wrong? No. But this is like eating a fish. And if you're not careful and picking out some bones, it's going to swallow them and it's going to hurt. It might end you up in the ER and it's dangerous. You see, in the middle of this, it misses the true gospel is that God saves us from our sin. This, this elevates like what God's trying to do is just to give you a nice, happy, fulfilled life on this earth. God wants to bless us, folks. Make no mistake about it. But where in the world do we reconcile that with the suffering that God gives us, that he tells us to count it all joy when we fall into all kinds of trials and tribulations, and that you may not be well in your life. You may have a loved one who may be terribly sick, and it has nothing to do with your faith, and it has nothing to do with God not loving you. The problem is, is that we take the gospel, the purity of it, and we add to it this otherworldly mindset. It's popular because who doesn't want to be wealthy? Who doesn't want to be healthy? Who doesn't want the, the lure of becoming all of that? When truth be known, we should actually be, rather than being the best version of us, we should be living out our life as the best version for God, experiencing the best that God has for us. And that is a subtle but a huge shift. And there are many Christians that are falling prey to it. Third or fourth one, I think, social justice gospel. Very common today, especially our young Christians tend to be following into this one. The social justice gospel marries together the gospel that Jesus wants to save us from our sins with the economic and the social plights of this world. It marries those together and puts them on the same page. Well, wait a minute, Sean. Aren't we supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves? Absolutely. Aren't we supposed to care for the poor? Absolutely. Like all of these gospels, it's a matter of emphasis. And what Jesus came to do is not to fix the societal ills in this world. Folks, let's be honest. Jesus was swimming in a world of privilege and abuse. Swimming. To be a Roman citizen put you at a level of privilege that no one else in the Roman Empire had. It gave you opportunities and rights and status and open doors that was not based on a race. It was based on your citizenship and he was swimming in a world with all kinds of abuses and broken systems and all of that. But when we see Jesus coming and telling us to talk up care for the poor, in fact, he tells us there's not going to be a removing of all of these, these ills in this world. Jesus said the poor you're always going to have with you. You see, the social justice system ultimately relies on socialism and Marxism that says really the goal in life is to raise up and put everybody on an equal economic and social status and fix all of that. And that sounds great 
except it's never worked in history and it's failed every time it's been tried, every single time. And when it comes to the gospel, it's dangerous and deadly because it takes the picture away that the biggest problem in the world is not where people are in a status of oppression or not. The biggest problem in the world is that people don't know Jesus and they're lost and they're dying and they're going to hell regardless of how much we help them. Sean, should we not care about equality and that? Of course. And are there, should we try to work on systems? Of course. But keep in mind, when Jesus told us to take care of the poor, he wasn't telling us to take care of a systemic thing. He was trying to tell us to take care of that individual right there in front of us that we need to love on and respect. You see, it never abrogates personal responsibility. The current conversation in social justice doesn't speak at all to individual responsibility. It makes it purely a class thing. And because it's built on Marxism, the, those oppressed should be causing revolution and throw off and puts all of the blame on those that, that are seen as having the authority and the opportunity. And reality is, is there are individuals in both of those groups, if you slice it that way, that are honoring God, and there's individuals in both of those groups that are dishonoring God, and the individual responsibility is where God always comes back to. So the social justice gospel makes a person's life in this world the highest good and not the true gospel. Fifth one is what I'm calling the patriotic gospel. There's another gospel out there that this is common amongst people that know Jesus and believe the Bible and love Christ, where they have elevated the, the, the sense of patriotism to put it on par with the gospel. There was an article this past week in one of the major papers. I'm not going to tell you the name of it because I'm hiding it. I just don't want to give them airtime, to be quite honest. And, uh, and this article talked about Christian nationalism. If you want to know, I'll, I'll tell you the article, and you can go find it or whatever afterwards. But it, and it went on, to, you know, the, the rioters and those individuals that not, didn't just march on Washington, but basically stormed and took the Capitol. And there apparently was an individual or two that mentioned, that, you know, in the name of Jesus, we're doing this. And then this article went on to say, in essence, how everybody who believes the Bible in Jesus is just like this, which is the stupidest thing in the world and not real at all. There are individuals that have married the gospel to the level of patriotism. They've, they've put government and the things going on around us on par. And we're not to do that. Our hope is in Jesus alone. Sean, can't we be patriotic? Of course. In fact, if you read the Bible, the Bible says pray for our leaders. Know what's going on. Be involved. But when things don't go our way in the sense of politically, we become so crestfallen. And when, we, when individuals fall into conspiracy theories and all other kinds of things, I'm sorry, but they're not trusting in the gospel. They're trusting in a patriotic false gospel, and they've mixed the two together. You see, folks, we're all at risk, vulnerable to having influences in each one of these things in our life. So how do you know? How do you know when you're falling for the lie of the faith plus gospel? How do you know when you're beginning to step on that slippery slope in your marriage and you're making yourself vulnerable because your heart's getting a little bit cold? 
Your spouse isn't quite what you want, and you're not coming to resolution and either forgiving or realizing that you need to get over it and you need to get off your self-centeredness or do something else about it. How do we know? You might be falling for the faith plus gospel when you find your hope and security in anything other than Jesus dying on the cross. For some individuals, they're trusting in those things and really don't know Jesus yet because they've really not put their faith in Jesus fully. Oh, they believe in Jesus. They believe in the cross. They believe he died on the cross and believe in God. But if you are trusting in you being a good person, these other works, your religious background, a particular church you grew up in, that's not the gospel. And you've stepped on that slippery slope. For others of us, and we can all fight this from time to time, even after we know Jesus, if we're not careful, we feel good about ourselves, about the performance and the works that we do. And that's actually part of that lure of the faith plus gospel. Our hope at the end of the day, folks, we feel good about ourselves because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do. Paul says, I didn't have anything good that I did. Everything was in me. It was just sin and garbage. I look at Jesus. Thank you. And if we're not careful, we begin to step on that performance treadmill. Well, that's the faith, faith plus gospel. How do we how do we know when we're falling into that greater experience, that second grace experience gospel? When we somehow begin to think that it's not enough, that we need something deeper, that, that we need more experience, that God, we're just not feeling God's love, and we need, we need to feel and have this going on in our life, that we need this big thing and this, this power, and we start going to all these other things and start looking elsewhere rather than trusting God's word. We are falling prey to the experienced second grace gospel. What about the prosperity gospel? When you and I begin to think that we deserve more. I deserve more. I should have a better house. I should have better this. I should have that. When our prayers begin to center on the things that we want and that we need in our health and all of those things more. Well, Sean, shouldn't I be pray for good health? Of course. Shouldn't we pray for one another? Of course. Do we need to be cared for? Of course. God. Of course, Jesus told us, pray for our daily bread. But the last time I checked, daily bread meant the bread I need today. <laughs> I'm willing to bet every one of us in this room has more than today's food in the pantry already and in the fridge. <laughs> and when you and I begin to... to think that we should have and somehow it's a measure of God's love for us or somehow God doesn't love me as much because I am struggling or falling for the prosperity gospel without even realizing it. What about the, what about the, the social justice gospel? When, when we care more about the social conditions of somebody than we do their soul, whether or not they're going to heaven or hell, we're believing a social justice gospel. When you and I give ourselves to a movement and dismiss the immoral parts of that movement, we're stepping on the social justice gospel. We're putting that bigger. When we believe that the social injustices are the greatest sins around us, and we dismiss personal responsibilities at all kinds of levels in people's lives, we've believed a, a lie a social justice gospel. What about the patriotic gospel? 
when we become so discouraged by the government, what's going on around us today, that we lose hope and we lose joy, we've put our hope in our politics or our government. When we make our politics top level or our loyalties, whichever party we belong to or no party, and we fail to even vote according to what the Bible teaches, we've fallen into some patriotic gospel. And Paul says, guys, you tolerate this stuff and you let it go on. This wasn't just then, we struggle with it. So as we kind of think about these things, I want to challenge you to identify which one of these are you most vulnerable to. Maybe you're not headlong into it, but which one of these lies are you most at risk by? Which one is most likely to creep into your thoughts and your thinking? You, you may be a million miles from turning away from Jesus, but subtly you might be relying on some of these other things in your life. Which one do you need to examine your heart before we take the supper and say, God, I want to be true to you in my heart. Not just on the outside with everybody sees, but I want to believe and I want to live that before you. This Lord's Supper time is a time for you and I to examine our life before God. It's a time to, meant to purify our heart, to focus our love and our, our affection, our devotion to Him and Him alone that he's the greatest thing in our life. And so I'm going to pray and, and give you a, a couple of minutes to just kind of think through. Hopefully you've had a chance. We've been kind of telling you this is happening all through the service. You've been able to kind of process this and meditate on it. But I want to give you a, a few moments just before you and God to examine your heart and your relationship with him. And, and after that, you guys have the little things in front of you. In fact, you can, if you want, you can feel free to go ahead and grab them and, and then you can, can sit back and think through that. But this is your time to just kind of, in your heart, to worship God. And I want to invite you, if you know Jesus is Lord of your life, you believe that one true gospel, then celebrate this together. And take this as a, just as a good checkup, like going to the doctor to get a physical. It's a spiritual checkup for your spiritual heart and your focus on Him. So let's all bow our heads, and I'm going to give you a couple of, of, maybe not a couple of minutes, but a few moments to just consider your own heart before God, to pray and talk with Him, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do the Lord's table together. Lord, I thank You for the one true gospel that Jesus is enough, that He came and He died for our sins and He rose again. Lord, forgive us when we begin to lose focus on that and be allured away to other false gospels. Lord, the enemy is so wise, so shrewd, that it's so easily for us to miss the gospel altogether, the true gospel, the true good news of salvation through Jesus alone. And it's easy to, if we do know that and have that, to somehow begin to undermine and be subverted and have our attention drawn away from it. And Father, all of these false gospels that we talked about have some kernels of truth in them. We care that people have justice and that there'd be love. But your focus was very different than what many are focusing on today. Lord, you do care that we be faithful to our country you do want to show up powerfully in our lives, but God, we shouldn't choose those experiences over your salvation and 
be looking for you to somehow validate your love for us on top of what you already did on the cross. So, Father, we, we examine our hearts today and ask you to purify them, and we celebrate what our Lord Jesus did for us without any strings attached, without anything added, but purely on him. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me read to you in 1 Corinthians what the Bible says. Paul shared with, in fact, the same church, the Corinthian church, about this communion, this Lord's table. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So you can go ahead and pull the, the top tab. He says, Do this in remembrance of me. This juice is meant to symbolize the blood of our Lord, not to be it, of course, but to remind us that it cost him his life, that our sins were so egregious and so offensive to God and when you and I add anything to the gospel of what we enough to live on or to, to be secure in, we're saying that what he did that symbolized in this cup is not enough. So in our hearts, let's purely worship and say, Jesus, you're enough. We worship you. And he says, for often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we should proclaim. And that's what we live. So I hope you have a, a blessed week and uh, think about some of these things and be careful with the world around us, folks. And let's hold to Jesus and Jesus alone. Have a blessed and wonderful week. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.